Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Pure as water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Welcome back, saints. The Lord bless you. We hope um, Unleavened Bread Bible Study is being a blessing unto you. We appreciate you so much. We've been studying love. And um, it's got to be one of the most important subjects we could possibly talk on. Well, Father, in the name of Jesus, we, um, we ask for your mercy, Lord. We ask that what we're studying and seeing in your word is... Um, what you're going to work in our life. We know, Lord, <clears throat> that it's already done at the cross, that the Lord Jesus gave us of his life, and that he is love, just as you are love, and that when we're perfected, Lord, we will be loved too. And um, we thank you for opening our understanding, and, and not only that, bringing these things to our remembrance, Lord, in the midst of the trial so that we will remember to um, do what you're telling us to do. Obviously, we don't want to just be hearers of the word and not doers of the word. Um, as a person who sees their natural face in the mirror, we want to be beholding in the mirror the glory of the Lord so that we can come into that same image as your word says. So by faith, Lord, we, we see the love of Christ in us. We see his fruit in us. We see his perfection in us. Your word says, by one offering you have perfected forever them that are sanctified. So we receive this gift today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that's the way we have to do it. We have to accept this gift from God. It's all free, isn't it? Well, we're in um, 1 Corinthians 13 still. And um, working our way through it by the grace of God. And we found uh, that um, verse 7 is where we left off. And it basically is saying that love beareth all things. Love beareth all things. What is it that we have to bear? Whatever God puts us through, right? (laughs) But love beareth all things. Well, anyway, I um, feel like... The Apostle Paul is a good example of this in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. He says in verse 12, If others partake of this right over you, do not we yet more. Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we bear all things, that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. What was he saying? What was he bearing? You know, was he bearing something that he didn't need to bear? Well, legally so. You know, he starts out at the beginning of the chapter saying that that he's an apostle. He has a right, for instance, to lead about a wife that is a believer, even as the rest of the apostles do. Uh, he had a right, uh, verse 6, to forbear working, as the rest of the apostles did. 
Um, he had a right to be fed of the gospel, basically, or have his needs met by his work in the gospel. And, and yet, here he's saying in verse 12, I'll read it to you once again, If others partake of this right over you, do not we yet more? In other words, he had a right to partake of the benefits of the kingdom like many of his brethren were doing. But in this case, he was saying, Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we bear all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. In other words, he bore more of the burden than was demanded of him in order for there to be no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Uh, you know, he, he bore the burdens of the brethren, you know, in order to cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. We've done that for many years in a way. We haven't charged anything, anybody for anything with the materials on our site, you know. And it's quite a witness to people that God can keep us going while we don't charge. We just give things away from our website. And um, and we do it to not cause any hindrance. There are so many people fed up with the materialism uh, in Christianity, uh, with the money grubbing, you know, with the gimme gospel. And, uh, and it causes what? A hindrance. See, that's why Paul was doing what he was doing. He didn't want to be a hindrance. It causes a hindrance to God. People use that for an excuse not to listen to you, you know, because they think you're profiting from the gospel instead of what Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give, right? Well, why did Jesus say that? He said that because he knew that the carnal man would judge you if you didn't do that. He knew it would be a hindrance to the gospel. So you bear a burden that normally wouldn't necessarily be needed to be borne. And, uh, you know, we're told in, in Galatians, let me read that to you, 6 and 2, it says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear ye one another's burdens. You know, sometimes we're called by the Lord to bear burdens that we don't think are right. And necessary. Jesus bore the burden of his cross. It wasn't right. You know, he was not guilty, but he bore it for other people, right? And that's what love is all about. Love is bearing a burden for the sake of others. You know, we're all called to do it. He said, bear all things. All things. In other words, Whatever God calls upon you to bear, whatever the circumstances call upon you to bear, then you have to do it. Because there's no such thing as circumstances without God. A man can receive nothing except to come from heaven. Anything around your life is not an accident. God put you there. You might as well be at peace and, and endure whatever you have to endure because God put you there for that purpose. Many people think, well, God forgot me, you know, well, because they don't understand the sovereignty of God. They think, God forgot me, or this is an unjust thing. God doesn't want me to put up with this. God doesn't want me to be a doormat. So once you hear those reasonings of men, you know. But um, whatever God calls upon you to bear in order to bring no hindrance to the gospel and to promote his kingdom and to grow up in him and to have more of his fruit and to have his love, then that's what you must do, right? 
And it doesn't matter if the world sees it as just or right or whatever, you know. You know, Jesus went to the cross, but he was free. He was freed from this this life, this lower life. He was free of it. And that's what the cross does to us, too. And verse 7 goes on to say, It believeth all things. Are you, you know, some people are very suspicious. You know, they're not easy to believe what people say to them. Or not easy to give a good reason behind someone's actions, you know. But love believeth all things, you know. You say, well, it kind of makes you a little gullible, doesn't it? Well, in a way it does. But let evil be proven, you know. Let it uh, let it be manifested. Don't suspect it all the time. You know, there are many people that do that all the time. They're very suspicious of other people. And they always attributed, uh, attribute bad motives behind everything, you know. But that's not love, you know. Let it be proven that a person does wrong. Let them prove it. You don't have to prove it, you know. Uh, we... We believe all things. We we hope all things. We you know we have a uh, a good expectation. That's what hope means: is um, a firm expectation. We expect um, all things. Everything that God has promised, we expect, even the good and the bad. Right? We receive it all. Right? We give thanks always for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And we endure all things. Endureth. Love endureth all things. And how do we endure it? I mean, enduring, of course, is obviously enduring whatever we have to go through, whatever the Lord puts in our path to go through, uh, patiently, kindly, with love, so on and so forth. These are attributes of Christ, which he has given to us as his gift, right? We need to remember that if we if, if we lose sight of that, we get our eyes off the Lord. We lose sight of the fact that the Lord has given us the nature that we need to go through these trials with. He's given us this love. He made an exchange of His love for our hate, if you will, or our um, other attributes that are contrary to love. He made an exchange, and He gave us His life. We need to keep that in mind so that the Lord can give us this grace, because it is a, a fighting the good fight of the faith, to, to lay hold on life that is eternal, right? And uh, enduring all things. Hebrews 12, I'm going to read this to you. Verse 3, an extreme example. It says, For consider him that hath endured such gainsaying of sinners against himself. Well, we don't like that, do we? Well, we don't like what the world says against us when it's wrong, when it's evil, when they've twisted and perverted everything. We don't like it. It's a crucifixion, isn't it? But he says, Consider him that hath endured such gainsaying of sinners against himself, that you may, that you wax not weary. In other words, consider what Jesus went through if it was unjust it was certainly unjust in his case, you know. And um, did Jesus actually go to the cross so that we wouldn't have to bear our cross? That's what many people think. But obviously that's a lie. He went to the cross to enable us to bear our cross. 
He's our sacrifice. We believe in our sacrifice. We accept that what was given to us was his life at the cross. And because of that, we're justified. And because of that, we actually receive it from him as a gift. But he endured all these things against himself. And he was holy. And he did no wrong. And surely we can expect to endure it too. He said that you wax not weary fainting in your souls. So keep your eye on him and what he endured and how unjust it was, and it'll help you to endure it too, right? But because he goes on to say, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Well, Jesus did, you know, resist unto blood, striving against sin. We haven't, uh, most of us haven't uh, physically been crucified or um, had to shed blood in order to... um, to go through our trial, but the Lord has, and we need to remember that and keep our eyes on Him. You know, verse 8 says in 1 Corinthians 13 that, that love never faileth. And I'm sure some people might use that word to mean that it won't fail us and it won't fail, but that's really not what it means. It means it will never cease. Love will never cease. You know, the gifts are just given to us for a while, you know. You know, while we're in this life, you know, we have these gifts. But but love is something that is a part of us and is our very nature, and it will be with us through eternity. That's what makes love and the other fruits of the Spirit so much more important than gifts or ministries or anything else. This is what we're here for, you know. Love never faileth. It never ceases. But whether there be uh, prophecies they shall be done away. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there shall be knowledge, it shall be done away. Now, I'm her- I know that many of you have probably heard the false teaching that um, prophecies are done away. Well, if prophecies are done away, then knowledge must be done away. He's mentioning it in the same text with the same words, right? Look at it very carefully. Whether there be prophecies, they shall be done away. It says shall be, right? Uh, whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Some, of course, the Pentecostal folks don't believe they've ceased. But the non-Pentecostal folks, many of them do believe they ceased. But then they would have to admit that the next word here, whether there be knowledge, it shall be done away. Then knowledge must be done away. Well, unless we're all walking around like imbeciles, we still have knowledge, right? So, If we still have knowledge, could we still have prophecies in tongues? Or just because they don't want to believe in them, they they cast them out, right? That's the whole point, you know, is um, calling evil good and good evil here. We know what the Scripture says. We know that these gifts from the Word of God have not passed away. Let's go back to um, just a moment and look in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 16. When the disciples were, of course, speaking in tongues and um, being filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, But this is that which hath been spoken through the prophet Joel. Now, you remember the text that we're talking about here in in Joel's work. It spoke of both a former rain and a latter rain, didn't it? And it went on to say here in verse 17, And it shall be in the last days, saith God, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all flesh. The last days. There's two last days here. One last days of the 
Jewish covenant and one last days of the Christian covenant. And we know that in the last days of the Jewish covenant, the exact same thing happened as is about to happen in the end of the Christian covenant. And that is that the beast is going to come in and devour and destroy the harlot, right? happened in both cases, back then at the end of the former reign and now coming in the end of the latter reign. And, and that's what he mentions here. So, so watch carefully. He says, I will pour forth of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. What last days is he talking about? Both. We can prove that as we read on. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Yea, and on my servants and on my handmaidens, in those days will I pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So when is he saying that they're going to prophesy now? Well, just keep reading just a little bit, and you see the same judgment that's about to come in our day that happened in their day. So we know that prophecy is going to be around until the ark lifts off. Watch carefully. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the day of the Lord come, the great and notable day. So we see here that they're going to be prophesying up until the last days in our day. Uh, and literally the day of the Lord is when the Lord comes and the ark, spiritual ark lifts off and the great and terrible wrath of God that, that is on the earth for a year after the seven days of Noah, right, uh, happens. So literally prophecy is going to be here as long as God's people are going to be here. So why do they want to do away with prophecy? Well, because they've been taught that all this passed away with the apostles. But that's not what we're talking about here. You know, watch, go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and, and look carefully here. What they're saying has nothing to do with the truth, and it has nothing to do with what's being spoken about here. Love never faileth, verse 8. But whether there be prophecies, they shall be done away. Now we know when they're going to be done away, right? Whether there shall be tongues, they shall cease. Uh, whether there be knowledge, it shall be done away. Knowledge, uh, obviously knowledge is necessary and needed as long as you walk in this body, right? And verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. So what's going to be done away? The, the, the gifts are a meantime thing. They're imperfect. They're not like the giver. You know, when God's finished with his people, the one who lives in them is the giver. They no longer need the gifts, and the gifts in part especially. But as our gifts are matured, that which is in part is done away, and that which is perfect is come, right? So what he's talking about, them passing away is the part. The imperfectness is passing away. What is continuing on is we're maturing in our gift. As Christ is manifested in us, we become more and more mature in our gift. It doesn't pass away, just the part passes away. The part which is imperfect passes away. 
He said, that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I felt as a child, I thought as a child. In other words, there is an immaturity that we need to overcome, right? And now that I've become a man, I have put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror darkly. There's that mirror again. And what's the mirror for? It's for the coming into the image of Jesus Christ. You know, 2 Corinthians 3 and 18. We behold in a mirror, we with an unveiled face, behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are transformed into that same image from glory to glory. The mirror is for us to come into the image of Jesus Christ. The mirror is faith. The mirror is saying, I don't live anymore. I see Christ living in me. See, that's what it says. And that's what Paul taught us to believe. I see love in me. I see God's gift of love is mine now. Because now I see him in the mirror, you see. So he says, but he says, but now we see in a mirror darkly. You know, we don't see Christ perfectly yet, right? Uh, because we come into his image from glory to glory, do we not? Star glory, moon glory, sun glory, right? 30, 60, and 100 fold, right? So, but now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Wow. So, when we see him face to face, is this love that we're reading about here in 1 Corinthians 13 going to be manifested in us? Yeah, it is. Because we grow from glory to glory into that same image, you see. And the whole point is, when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away, right? What is that which is perfect? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? So we uh, eagerly await the manifestation of our salvation, which is Christ in you. That is the manifestation of our salvation. You want to see what salvation is? Look at Jesus. That's what salvation is. We're saved from all of the curse, saved from all of our sin, saved from all of the corruption around us. And um, then you see Jesus, right? And And when you look in the mirror and you see God's love, you can remember that, of course, that his children, who are his chosen, who bore their cross, they also are love. And, you know, when you read 1 Corinthians 13, you see nothing but bearing a cross all the way through there. And, uh, you know, if we refuse to take up our cross, we will not manifest the love of Christ. It cannot happen. And so, you know, when when that which is in part is done away, that which is perfect um, will be ours. And and we read on, it says, Now I know in part, you know, but then shall I know fully, even as also I was fully known. Well, isn't that interesting? You know, the Lord knew us, or let me say he knew the elect from the foundation of the world, right? He had foreknowledge of those who would be with him at the end, having borne fruit. He had foreknowledge of those people. The rest, the Bible says, are erased out of his book. The book that we were written in from the foundation of the world, he knew us. He knew the elect. He knew the chosen people of God 
from the foundation of the world. But he says here now that when we see him face to face, he says, Now I know in part, but then shall I know fully, even as I was fully known. Do you remember what he said to the people who didn't have love? We studied that in our last, or actually I think it was the time before last, over in Matthew chapter 7. Let me read that to you. What did he say to those people who didn't have that love, who didn't bear the fruit, you know, but were expecting that their gifts were all that were necessary to get them into the kingdom? Well, Jesus said unto them, in chapter 7, Matthew 7 and 23, And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. See, God knows people by faith. He sees the end from the beginning. He knows who's going to be there at the end, bearing fruit. He has foreknowledge for knowing that person. And yet he says here, that these people who at the end, and they're before the judgment seat, he says, I never knew you. But to the person who has borne their cross, 1 Corinthians 13, and they have manifested the love of Christ, they have fought the good fight of the faith, they have laid hold on life eternal, he said to them, They're going to know fully even as they were fully known. Wow, that's awesome. And back to 1 John chapter 4. Let me read two verses to you. Verse 7 and verse 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And every one that loveth is born of God. And knoweth God. You know that? Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. He said, we will know fully even as we were fully known. Right? And he's talking about the manifestation of love. Right? Herein Excuse me, verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Herein was the love of God manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And I'm going to go back to um, 1 John 3 and start in verse 13, because this is a love chapter 2. I mean, actually it's 3 love chapters, or the biggest part is in chapter 4, but also in chapter 3 and chapter 5, there's a lot spoken about love. And in verse chapter 3 and verse 13, it says, Marvel not, brethren, if the world hateth you. We take that for granted, that the more we get like Christ, the more the world's going to hate us, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, because we are contrary one to another, right? Christ and Antichrist. We're total opposites, right? So the more we become like Christ, you know, you can be very religious and be Antichrist. You know, Jesus said, you're of your father the devil. He said that to the Pharisees who were very religious. But you can't be full of love and be Antichrist because God is love and so are God's children. Marvel not, 
Brethren, if the world hateth you, we know that we have passed out of, listen to this, passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. Passed out of death and into life. If you love, you've passed into life. If you live as a carnal Christian and don't love, you're not living in life. And, uh, you know, if you, chapter 5 and verse 11 says, And the witness is this, that God gave unto us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Where do we get the life? We only get the life if we abide in the Son. He said, If you abide in Me, you bear fruit. What is love? It's fruit, right? If you abide in me. Some people think that God has given us a gift. He's put it in our hand and he can't take it back. But he didn't put it in our hand. He put it in Christ. And he tells us the only place you can get it is if you abide in Christ. Some people think that they can be disobedient and have eternal life. But let me read this to you. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk as he walked. Abiding in Christ is first by faith. First, you accept by faith what he says. And your faith is accounted as righteousness. But then as you walk in that faith, the Lord begins to manifest power to you. It's called grace. Grace is manifested in power, it's manifested in ability, it's manifested in gifts, it's manifested in all these things, you know. So, if we abide in Christ, who is love, if we have love, then we're in life, he says. And that life is in the Son. And if we're love, we're also walking in his steps, we noticed. Right. So, if if as a carnal Christian one never walks in love, they're never manifesting what the Lord saved them for. <clears throat> Salvation is love. Salvation is whatever we have in Christ. Remember what he said. He says, And the witness is this, that God gave unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Remember what Jesus said? That if we didn't abide Him, we would wither. And we would be gathered up and thrown in the fire. Because we wouldn't bear any fruit. We did not abide in Him. Abiding in Him is that twofold thing that we're speaking about. Is first of all, by faith. And second of all, by manifestation. As you walk by faith, you're going to be manifesting more and more and more of Him. Because faith brings forth fruit. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith is what gives us what the nature of God is. Faith. That is, we believe that Jesus gave us his love. We now have his love. He gave us his faith. We now have his faith. Anything that you need, he gave to you. And when you believe the reconciliation that God made this exchange, and he gave you his life, and he took your old carnal, fallen, corrupt life, then now 
you're perfected in Christ by faith. By one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. See, now you have this gift of God by faith. You don't have to beg God to give you love. You have to accept the gift that he gave you. But you have to cooperate with him in this process. And if you don't know how to cooperate with him, then you may think with a lot of Christians that, well, all i got to do is sit on a pew until the rapture happens. You know, No, we're here for a purpose. It is to manifest the life and nature of Jesus Christ. And there are, quite frankly, many what we loosely call Christians who don't walk in love. They walk in hatred. And they don't have, they're not walking in the life. Right? Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. This whole process of passing out of the death of this life and into the life of Christ is a, a manifesting that love. Right? And as we saw, you can't manifest that love without the crucified life. So he goes on to say here in 1 John 3, He that loveth not abideth in death. In verse 15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Well, you remember what Jesus did. Jesus taught us that it wasn't what you did on the outside of this life. You're just as accountable for what you think before the opportunity comes for you to manifest it. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus spoke a lot about that. In fact, I'll read Matthew 5, 21 on down. It says, You've heard it was said unto them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. In other words, According to the law, it was according to what a man did, not according to what a man was. The Lord is not satisfied with changing what we do. He wants to change who we are. If he changes who we are, he already changes what we do. The problem with the law is it didn't deal with what a person was. It just gave them rules about what they did. Well, that's not... The way the Lord wants to do it in the New Testament, he first of all wants to change who you are, and then he'll automatically change what you do. So, he says here, he's not satisfied with judging you according to the kill, the the manifestation of killing someone on the outside. It's what's on the inside. Verse 22, But I say unto you that every one who is angry with his brother, what's, what's the difference here? The only thing needed is opportunity. Just because the opportunity hadn't shown up for you to actually manifest the sin doesn't mean you aren't the sinner. He's judging the sinner here. The Lord wants to do away with the nature of sin, not just the sin action. See, that's what people are mistaken about. They think that God just wants to change the sin action. No, he wants to take away the nature of sin. He doesn't want sinners in heaven. Now, they can put you in jail. You know, uh, they call it jailhouse religion. Put you in jail where you don't have opportunity to sin. And you can be pretty good sometimes, you know. I mean, at least you can't do some of the things that you did on the outside, you know, when you were free to sin and had opportunity. So if somebody could put you in jail 
and make you be, would, would God like you after you've been in jail? No, because he don't want the sinner. He wants to destroy the sin nature. He said you have to lose your life to gain your life, right? That's what he's after. So Jesus magnifies the law in the New Testament because now God is giving us something we didn't have in the Old Testament. He's giving us the grace to do away with the sin nature. This is the great thing about the good news, let me put it that way. It's the good news. But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Just angry. In danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of the hell of fire. If therefore thou art offering thy gift at the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar. Go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother. In other words, he's interested in what is in your mind, in your thoughts, in your heart, right? Then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art with him in the way, lest happily the adversary deliver thee to the judge, the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. And verily I say unto thee, thou shalt come by no means come out thence until thou hast paid the last farthing. Who is it that has to pay for the penalty for their sins, you know? Well, the old man is the one that needs to pass away. He's the one that's doing the sinning, right? Your spiritual man doesn't sin. He's created in the image of God. He doesn't sin. So back to 1 John 3 and 15, he says, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life, abiding in him. Hereby know we love, because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You know, we we came here also to lay down our life. Jesus was our example, you know. Of course, we don't have to go to a physical cross, not likely anyway, but we do have to go to that spiritual cross we just read in 1 Corinthians 13. We're here to lose our life by learning to cooperate with God in not feeding that old life any longer. If you don't feed it, it will die. But we have to know how not to feed it, not to give in to that carnal nature. Well, that's what those... Statements in 1 Corinthians 13 were all about. This is what love is. This is what love isn't. And love is more important than all of the gifts and all the ministries and anything you could do in this life, right? And love is God. And, and God's children are love too. So, because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso, here's a, an, another example of how to do that. You know, whoso has the world's goods and beholdeth his brother in need, and shuts up his compassion from him, how doth the love of God abide in him? Well, this is what we're after, right? This is what we desire after. We desire after the love of God to be in us. And he tells you it can't happen if you have the world's goods 
and you shut up your compassion from somebody who is in need. How does the love of God abide in him, he says. We need to remember that. You know, God uh, preached in Second Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, uh, equality, uh, like when they went in to gather the manna, and they filled every man's omer, and then they wiped off the top of the omer, made sure everybody had what they needed, you know. Uh, he that gathered little had no lack, and he that had much had nothing over, the Bible says. So they, they met each other's needs and made sure there was equality. And of course, that's where the church is going again in these days, folks. We're going to go into community to survive the things that are coming upon the world now. And when you come into community, you, you remember Ananias and Sapphira, don't you? Yeah, they they were coming into a community, and they were deciding not to live by love. They wanted to live their old selfish lifestyle, but yet they wanted to have all the benefits of living among people who lived by love and who had uh, believed in equality and meeting one another's needs. And so the Lord took them out. How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither with the tongue, but in deed and in truth. Well, there are a lot of fake lovers out there, aren't there? You know, it's just skin deep, right? And the Lord is saying, no, no, he wants it from your heart, you know. He goes on to say, hereby shall you know that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him. Well, what is that? That we love in Deed and in truth. And uh, and we're of the truth, and we assure our heart before him. Well, it reminds me a lot of what James said in chapter 2. Let me read that to you. Verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, if a man say he has faith, but he has not works? I wonder if it's true about love. Well, he just got through saying it was. It's exactly true about love, you know. People can say they have love, but it's not manifested in their actions, right? He, he said he wants it in our deeds, right? And um, what does it profit, he says, if a man say he has faith, but he has not works? Can that faith save him? Well, can that kind of love save? No, it can't. It, can it be the nature of God? No, it can't, because it's just skin deep. If a brother or sister be naked... And in lack of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. And yet you don't give them the things needful to the body. What does it profit? So this is not loving in deed and in truth, is it? Even so, faith, if it have not works, is dead in itself. And I dare say there's a lot of love that's skin deep, it, do, it doesn't manifest into action, and, um, you know, it's just words. It's just words out of most people. But the elect, the chosen of God, those who bear their cross, their First Corinthians 13 cross, because obviously that's there too, you know, to bring us into love, those people are going to manifest the love which is the nature of God. And in their actions it will be proven. Okay. And he goes on to say, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, we have boldness towards God. 
And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, which everyone that loves God keeps his commandments. That's what Jesus said, right? Because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And I'm going to jump on down to, excuse me, I'm going to start chapter 4 and verse 7 again. I read that a while ago, but it, every time we read some more here, it seems to to um, open this up even better. He said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And every one that loveth is born of God. Now, you say, well, um, born of God. We hear a lot about being born of God, born again. You say that says begotten, but it's the exact same word as born, same word. Um, we hear a lot about being born again. And many people don't realize that born again is really threefold. You know, when you come to the Lord, you can have no fellowship with God whatsoever. You don't even belong to Him, Romans 8 says, unless you have a born-again spirit in the likeness of Christ's spirit, right? So the first thing you get is a born-again spirit. Does that mean you've born fruit? No, because you still have a soul that hasn't taken on the nature of Jesus Christ. The soul, your 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 soul is your life. It's your nature. It's your character. You know, it's um, it's where God wants to bear the fruit that you have in your spirit, right? And so God gave you a, a fresh, clean spirit so you could have fellowship with Him while you walk in that spirit and manifest fruit in your soul, in your nature, and in your character, in your thinking, right? But he says here, everyone that loveth is born of God. Because a person who loves, think about what love is now. Now that we've read 1 Corinthians 13, you know, um, briefly as it were, we saw what love is. You know, love is the nature of God. Love is the crucified life. A person who's born of God or begotten of God and knows God loveth. That's what he says here. And verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God. Not yet they don't. Well, you know, there there may be portions of that love that we read about in 1 Corinthians 13 that we haven't come into yet. But we have a desire to know God, right? And by faith, we have received His gift. Now we're reading 1 Corinthians 13, and we see more of what it is to cooperate with God in this process. And since we desire after it, God will give it to us, because we're walking by faith. He doesn't hold us accountable for this until we see it. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. He doesn't hold you accountable. You can't look at your brother and say, I'm holding you accountable, you're not doing this. If, if you know it, then you're accountable. If he doesn't know it, he's not yet accountable. He's still walking by faith. He's justified by faith. So you have to be careful about judging somebody else. You only know what you know, you see. And so what you know, you're going to be held accountable for, see. And so... What you know of 1 Corinthians 13, God is holding you accountable to walk in. He will give you the grace as long as you're walking by faith. Because faith gives us access to the grace that we need 
to be obedient. If you don't believe you're supposed to be obedient, if you've been lied to by the apostate church and told that that's not necessary, that's works, well then, you, and if you accept that because you want to accept that, because you want to walk in your sins, then go ahead. But you're never going to bear fruit, and you're not going to be born again. Oh, but I was born again. Yeah, in spirit. But God came to bring us the new birth, spirit, soul, and body. You see, if you're not cooperating, you're not going to bear fruit in the soul. If you don't bear fruit in the soul, you're not going to receive that born-again body. You see, this is a lie. People have lied. And uh, again, eternal life is in Christ. There's no other place you can get it, you know. You can't shake a preacher's hand and get eternal life. And if you do get eternal life in your spirit, it doesn't mean you've got it in your soul. We're bearing fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold, you see. And uh, verse 9. Herein was the love of God manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. That's very, very similar to uh, what we just read in chapter 3 and verse 16. Um, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation means the covering, you know. Covering for our sins. You can't have fellowship with God without a covering for the part of you that's not sanctified yet. That part is offensive to God. Now, you've got a covering because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. A blood covering. That, that way you can have fellowship with God. But you want to know how to lose that blood covering? Some people don't think you can lose it. But you just don't, if you don't, if you don't cover your brother, if you don't think that he should have the right to a covering too, if you hold him accountable for things that God has covered, until he's able to deliver him. You know, if you hold him accountable, if you, for instance, are unforgiving or critical or judgmental or angry, uh, what you're saying is he doesn't have a covering as far as you're concerned. Now, God's given him a covering. God sees him through the blood. And God has accepted him and God's forgiven him until he gives him knowledge and the ability to walk in that, you see. But you're saying you're holding him accountable to you, you see. So what you're saying is this propitiation that God has given unto him is not valuable to you. Well, you know what happens in a case like that? God takes away your covering, you see. And then he holds you accountable for the things that you do. With what measure you meet, it shall be measured unto you again. This is very dangerous. Pay attention to what he's saying here. This is what love is. You see, um, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Well, of course, we want everybody to be covered by the blood, right? And we want them to know that if they walk in willful disobedience, they're not really covered by the blood. If we sin willfully after we receive a knowledge of the truth, there remains no sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment which shall devour the adversaries. So we see that when we walk in willful disobedience, we're not attempting to cooperate with God. We want to live in our sins, and we want to make a doctrine, 
you know, an unconditional eternal security type doctrine so we can live in our sins and, and still go to heaven. It's like a ostrich sticking his head in the sand, right? I understand that's not really a true parable, but, but it, it kind of makes sense. A lot of people are doing something like that, you know. Uh, so propitiation is important. It should be important to us that our brother be covered, you know. And um, he goes on to say, verse 11, he said, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Yeah, if God gave us this love so much that he forgave, he passed over our sins, then we need to do the same thing for our brothers. You know, we're not talking about willful disobedience. Uh, the church judges willful moral disobedience, but the church passes over ignorance, failure, all those things that God passes over for us. He wants us to pass over for them. Ignorance, ignorance of the complete doctrine of God, the teaching of God, failure. Failure is not the problem, folks. It's willful disobedience that's the problem. We can fail. We will all fail until we get grace from God. We have to walk by faith to get grace from God. Walking by faith is not walking by condemnation. See, when you condemn someone, what you're doing is taking away their faith so that they can't overcome, so that they can't receive the grace of God to get up and go. See? So he says, uh, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man hath beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abideth in us. Listen to that. If we love one another, God abideth in us. Well, we want God to abide in us all the time, don't we? Well, the way to do that is love. And the way to love is faith. Faith gives us grace. Grace gives us love and all the other attributes of Jesus, right? And so we're patiently waiting for the finishing of God's work upon us. And we need to do the same thing for our brother. Wait patiently for God's finishing of his work on them. Accounting that God is able to finish the good work he started in them, right? Like Paul said, praise God. And, um, well, you know, I think what we'll do is pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we, we desire earnestly this love to be manifested in us, which was manifested in Christ, Lord. We know it was given to us through his sacrifice, and we know we want it. We know we desire it. We know, Lord, that since it's been given, that we can accept this gift by faith. Faith calls the things that be not as though they were. So we're accepting it as done, Lord. We're accepting it as done, as ours. We thank you, Lord, for this gift of love. We thank you for manifesting it in us. We thank you for reminding us of these um, principles that you've given us today uh, to cooperate with you in this process, Lord. The decisions that we can make to deny self and to love, Lord, remind us of these things and help us, Lord, to cooperate with you. Thank you, Father. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. God bless you, saints. Well, thank you, Brother David. God bless you. Hello, saints. Good to be back with you again. Let's go to the Lord. Father God, I praise you and I glorify you for these times that we're in. I thank you for your word, Lord, that uh, 
uh, is the great confession. And I praise you, Father, that today we're going to speak about that, the way we use our our uh, vocabulary into confessing the great, wonderful benefits of being one of yours. And I praise you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. I ask for your anointing today, Father, to get this word out, to help people to confess the good confession in their life, in their walk with you, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, that it's going to help a lot of folks. Praise you and glorify you, Lord, for the victories that we have here. That's what I want to talk about today, folks, is uh, the power of your words. Few Christians have recognized the place that confession holds in, in the scheme of everything. Whenever the word confession is used, we instinctively think of what's that? Confessing our sins, confessing our weaknesses, confessing our failures. Folks, that's the negative side of this question. Christianity is called the great confession. Confessing is affirming something that we believe. It is testifying of something that we know. It's witnessing for a truth that we have embraced. Confession holds a very large place in Christianity. And of course, most of Christianity don't know this. Jesus planned that this great life and love should be given to the world through testimony. That is, through the confession of our lips. Testifiers and witnesses and confessors. These have been the great leaders in the revolutionary life that Jesus gave to the world. And the major problem that we face then is to know what it is we are to confess. Well, our confession centers around several things. First, what God in Christ has worked in us. Second, what God through the Word and the Spirit has worked in us. And third, what we are to the Father in Christ. And last of all, what God can do through us or what the Word will do through our lips. And you can't confess or witness about things you don't know. It's what you've seen and heard that counts in the courtroom, right? And it's what you know personally about Jesus Christ and about who you are or what you are in Christ that counts. There are too few of us that dare to confess to the world what the Word declares that we are in Christ. Now, just take this next scripture, for instance. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Second Corinthians 5 and 17. What a revolutionary thing it would be for the church to make a confession like that. We're not just forgiving sinners, not poor, weak, staggering, sinning church members. We are new creations, created in Christ Jesus with the life of God, the nature of God, and the ability of God in us. And what an inspirational excitement it would make in today's church for you to boldly confess that you are absolutely redeemed. Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 7 and 8. In whom we have our redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound toward us in all 
wisdom, and prudence. That means that Satan's dominion has been broken. That he lost his dominion over your life the moment you became a new creation. You received a new Lord, Jesus Christ, to reign over you. Satan's dominion ended and Jesus' dominion began. Disease and sickness can no longer lord it over you. The old habits can no longer lord it over you because you are a new creation created in Christ Jesus. And boy, what a shaking there would be if this scripture became a reality in Isaiah 41.10. It says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And in Romans 8 and 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? Man, that's the most revolutionary thing that has ever been taught. That's your confession. As you stand before the world, it's God is with me right now, this morning. <clears throat> and then 1 John 4 and 4 declares, You are of God, little children and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And you fearlessly say, God is in me now. The master of creation is in me. And boy, what a confession that is. Then you can face life fearlessly, because you know now that greater is he that is in you than all the forces that can surround you, that can be gathered against you. You're facing bills that you can't pay. You're facing the enemies that you have no ability to conquer. And yet you face them fearlessly. And you say with trial, he prepares a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And he anoints my head with oil. Psalms 23 and 5. Then I'm filled with joy and victory, because God has taken me over. He's fighting my battles. I ain't afraid of circumstances, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4 13. He's not only my strength, but he's also my right hand. He's my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He throws light upon life's problems so that I know I can act intelligently. He's my salvation. He's my deliverance from every trap that the enemy tries to set for me and from every snare in which he would try to enslave me. Psalms 27, 1 says, The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I ain't scared of nothing. I have no fear because this God of omnipotence is on my side. And that's going to be, that is my continual confession. And I confess that I have a redemption that God planned and wrought in Christ. I am a new creation of which he himself is the author and the finisher. I have a righteousness that permits me to stand in his presence as though sin had never been. 
I not only have righteousness reckoned to me, but I also have righteousness imparted to me in the new nature that I have received for him, from God. I have received God's nature, his life. And in this life in nature is the life of God. That makes me righteous, even as he is righteous. And that's my confession. Because this gives me boldness in prayer. This builds my faith. This makes my way sure. And I'm no longer hemmed in by any kind of limitations because I am united with the limitless one. Because he's divine and I am the branch. And as a branch, I bear his fruit because the vine is imparting to me the fullness of his life. I know the reality of this because it has become a part of my very being. I know love because he has shed abroad his love in my heart through the Holy Spirit. And I know that his nature in me is love. His love ability has gained the mastery. For now I can love in whatever circumstances that I'm placed in. And I can say with joy, sin shall not have dominion over me. Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. It can't, it can't lord itself over me. Circumstances no longer hold me in bondage and hinder my usefulness in the world. I not only have God's life in me and this great spirit who raised up Jesus from the dead in me, that's the Holy Spirit, but I also have the use of Jesus' name. He has given me a legal right to use it. And my confession is that whatever I ask of the Father in his name, he's going to give it to me because he's given me the power of attorney. And I am using that power of attorney to help men. To help men. And I am taking Jesus' place now. Here on earth. He's working his own work through me. He's living his own life in me. Jesus said, in my name, you shall cast out demons. Well, I'm exercising my rights. He said, in my name, you shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. My hands become the medium through which his life pours. And I am living the abundant life. And I know my words are his words. His words broke the power of death. His words broke the power of demons. And his words healed the sick. And they do the same things in my lips. This is my confession. This is my heart expressing itself through words in my lips. Confession is faith's way of expressing itself. And faith, like love, is only, only revealed in action and word. There ain't no faith without confession. Because faith grows with your confession. Confession does several things to the believer. It locates him, it fixes the landmark of his life, and it mightily affects his spirit, that inner man, when he makes this declaration. For instance, there is in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, 
that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. There's two confessions involved here. First, it's a confession of the Lordship of Jesus. And second, that he has become the righteousness of God and is saved. And those are positive confessions. And the reason the majority of Christians are weak, though they are earnest, is that they've never dared to make a confession of what they are in Christ. And what they must do is find what they are in the mind of, of the Father, how the Father looks upon them, and then go ahead and confess it with your mouth. And you can find that over in the epistles of Paul. And when you find this, you step up boldly, make your confession of what the word declares you are in Christ. And as you do that, your faith is going to take off like a rocket. And the reason your faith is throttled and held in bondage is because you never dare to confess what God says you are. Remember that faith never grows beyond what you confess. And your daily confession of what the Father is to you, what Jesus is now doing for you at the right hand of the Father, and what the mighty Holy Spirit is doing in you, it's going to build a positive, solid faith life. You wouldn't, you, you're not going to be afraid of any circumstance or any disease or any condition that comes before you because you will fearlessly face life, a conqueror in Christ. And after a while, you'll find that Romans 8 and 37 is true. It says, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And you ain't never going to be a conqueror until you confess it, right? <laughs> you just have to get out there and boldly confess it. Now, wrong confession is the confession of defeat, failure, and of the supremacy of Satan. And talking about your combat with the devil, how he has hindered you, and how he is holding you in bondage and keeping you sick, is a confession of defeat. It's a wrong confession. Because it glorifies your enemy. It is an unconscious declaration that your Father God is a failure. And most of the confessions that we hear today glorify the devil. And they destroy faith and it holds you in bondage. The confession of your lips that has grown out of faith in your heart will absolutely defeat the enemy in every combat. And the confession of Satan's ability to hinder you and keep you from success gives Satan dominion over you and fills you with fear and weakness. But if you boldly confess your father's care and protection and declare that he that is in you is greater than any force around you, you're going to rise above any kind of satanic influence. And every time you confess your doubts and fears, your weaknesses and your disease, what you're doing is you're openly confessing that the word of God is not true and that God has failed to make it good. He declares that with his stripes you were healed and surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our diseases. 
and instead of confessing that he had borne my disease and put them away, I confess that I still have them. I take the testimony of my senses instead of the testimony of the word of God. And as long as I hold fast to my confession of weakness, sickness, and pain, I'm going to still have them. And I might search for years for some man of God to pray the prayer of faith for me. And it ain't going to do me no good because my belief, my unbelief, destroys the effect of his faith. The believer that is always confessing his sins and his weaknesses is building weakness, failure, and sin into his consciousness. If we do sin, when we confess it, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 and 9 says it. And when that confession has been made, you don't have to refer to it again. It's not, it's not just past history. Because history can be remembered. This is though it had never happened. And we should never remind ourselves or the Lord of our failings or of our past mistakes. They are not. And if you confess anything, confess that you stand complete in him. That what God has said in regard to your mistakes and blunders is absolutely true. So you confess that God is the Lord of your life, that he is the Lord over disease, sickness, and Satan. And you hold fast to your confess, confessions of Jesus, absolute lordship over everything that would keep you in bondage or hinder you from enjoying the finished work of Christ. And in the face of every need, you confess that the Lord is your shepherd. You do not want. And folks, that's always in the present tense. He is always your supply. He is always your health, your strength. He's the strength of your life. Of whom will you be afraid? And remember that we never realize beyond our confession. And if you dare confess healing on the ground of the word, then there's no sickness for you. And in the face of pain and an open sore, you confess that with his stripes you are healed and you hold fast to your confession, never wavering, knowing that no word from God is void of power. And that word power means ability, ability to make good. That word will heal you if you continually confess it. Your body will respond to your mind and your spirit will gain that lordship over your body and your mind. Your body will obey your confession. You can change anything in your, in your body if you just confess it. He sent his word and healed them, Psalm 107 and 27. Jesus was that word. And now that name of Jesus and the words of Jesus become your healing. Confession is confirming the word of God. It is a confession of my confidence in what God has spoken. And here's, every, here's a bunch of confessions every believer should make in Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart 
man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We confess the absolute lordship of Jesus and the absolute righteousness that is proclaimed to us in our redemption. And we dare to confess before the world and before the throne of God that Jesus is now our Lord and that we have received salvation and become the righteousness of God in him. We confess that we are new creations of which Jesus is the head and the Lord. The word of God has taken Jesus' place in our lives because we are to obey the word just like we would if we were right there with Jesus. And a second confession is found in 1 Peter 5 and 7. Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. We confess that we no longer have any cares, anxieties, and burdens. We can never have helplessness. We can never be unnerved and unfit for life's work. Our minds are complete and our minds are clear. Our spirits are free. Our testimony has the anointing of the Spirit upon it because he bears every burden, carries every load, and meets every need. And the third confession is the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Psalms 23 and 1. Listen, I don't want for money. I don't want for health or rest. And I do not want for strength. I do not want for anything. He's all that I need. This is a living reality, folks. And what a life is mine. What a sense of security, of power, and of victory. And you're not afraid to take your stand on Philippians 4:19 that says, My God shall supply all my need. And then you loudly make your fourth confession that Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5 and 1 Peter 2, 24 is true. That every disease, every weakness, and every infirmity was laid on Jesus Christ and you are free from them. And just as he bore your sin, he bore your disease. Because you stand complete in him, free from the burden, the power, the pain, and the effect of disease. And this confession gives you that healthy body, gives you a clear mind, and a conquering spirit, glory to God. And the, your fifth confession is that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 is absolutely true. It says, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ been made all these things unto us. And you don't need to pray for wisdom, as James told the babes in Christ to do in James 1 and 5, because he is your wisdom. And you don't have to ask for righteousness, because you have become the righteousness of God in him. You don't have to ask him for to sanctify you because he is your sanctification. And you don't have to pray for redemption because you are redeemed. Here's your redemption. And what a confession to make before the world. In Hebrews 4, 14, it says, Let us hold fast our confession. We have found in a measure what our confession is. 
But folks, there's a great deal more to it than you heard me talk about here. Your success and usefulness in the world are going to be measured by your confession and by the tenacity with which you hold fast to that confession under all circumstances or the opinions of men. You'll never yield to fear or listen to the voice of the senses. And you stand by your confession knowing that God can't fail you. And there's a grave danger of a dual confession. You confess his faithfulness, the absolute faithfulness of his word, and yet at the same time, you confess your sickness. And you confess your weakness. You confess your lack of money, your lack of ability. And you have confessed that he was your supply, that he was your healer. You have confessed that you were healed by his stripes. Now you talk about your lack of ability to do this or that because of your sickness. You can't do the housework because of this sickness. Or you can't go about your business because you're not able to do it. Yet, you have made your confession that he was the strength of your life and that with his stripes you were healed. Your confession of sickness and disease destroys what you are in Christ or what he is to you. And this is one of the most dangerous of all confessions. You will find that you have been so carefully trained in the confession of wrong or in failure or of weakness or sin or sickness and of want that it will take a great deal of discipline through the word to cure you of that habit. Now, let's make our confession and stand by it, okay? You know, few of us realize that our confession imprisons us. The right kind of confession will set you free. It's not only our thinking, it's our words, our conversation that builds power or weakness into us. Our words are the coins in the kingdom of faith. And our words snare us and hold us in captivity. Or they can set us free and become powerful in the lives of others. It's what we confess with our lips that dominates our inner beings because we unconsciously confess what we believe. If we talk sickness, it's because we believe in sickness. If we talk weakness and failure, it's because we believe in weakness and failure. And it's surprising what faith people have in the wrong things. They firmly believe in cancer and believe in ulcers of the stomach, tuberculosis and other incurable diseases. Their faith in those diseases rise to the point where it utterly dominates them and rules them. And they become absolute slaves to it. They get the habit of confessing their weakness and their confession adds to the strength of their weakness. They confess their lack of faith and they are filled with doubts. They confess their fear and they become more fearful. They confess their fear of disease and the disease grows under the confession. They confess their lack, and they build up a sense of lack that gains the supremacy in their lives. 
when we realize that we will never rise above our confession, we're getting to the place where God can really begin to use us. You can you confess that by his stripes you were healed. Hold fast to your confession. And you know what? No disease can stand before you. But whether we realize it or not, we're sowing words, just as Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verse 11. The seed is the word of God. And the sower went forth to sow, and the seed he was sowing was the word of God. This is the seed we should sow. Others are sowing sense or flesh knowledge, seeds of fear and doubt. We need to confess the good word. And it's when we confess the word of God and declare with emphasis that by his stripes I am healed, or my God supplies every need of mine and hold fast to that confession, that's when we see our deliverance. Our words begat faith or doubt in others. Revelation 12 and 11 says this, and said they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They overcame him with the word of God that was in their testimony. They conquered the devil with word. Most of the sick that Jesus healed during his ministry were healed with words. God created the universe with words, faith-filled words. Jesus said, Thy faith hath made thee whole in Matthew 9 and 22. And what he say to the dead man? He said, Lazarus, come forth. His words raised the dead. Satan is overcome by words. He's whipped by our words. His lips become the means of transportation of God's deliverance from heaven to man's knees here on earth. We use God's word. Here's what we say. We say, in Jesus' name, demon, come out of him. Jesus said this. He said, in my name, you will cast out demons. In my name, you will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. All of it was with words. The church has never given this vital subject a place in its teaching and yet answered prayer. The use of Jesus' name and faith are utterly dependent upon it. Hebrews 3 and 1 says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly caller, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. Christianity is called our confession. And in Hebrews 4 and 14, we're told to hold fast our confession. Now you understand Romans 10. Verses 9 and 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You see, the place that confession holds in salvation, it holds the same place in our faith walk. Christianity is a confession. It's our open confession of what we are in Christ and of what Christ is to us. Our faith is gauged by our confession. 
We never believe beyond our confession. And it's not a confession of sin. It is the confession of our place in Christ, of our legal rights, of what the Father has done for us in Christ and what the Spirit has done in us through the Word and what He's able to do through us. Folks, there is a grave danger of our having two confessions. One would be the integrity of the Word and the other would be for our doubts and fears. Every time we confess weakness and failure and doubt and fear, we go to the level of them. We may pray very passionately and very earnestly and declare in our prayers our faith in the Word, and yet the next moment we question whether He heard us or not, for we confess we have not the things for which we pray. Now our last confession destroys our prayer. When someone asks you to pray for his healing and you pray for him and then he says, I want you to keep on praying for me. And then you ask him, what do you want me to pray for? And he said, oh, for my healing. And then you go ahead and you tell him, you say, prayer ain't going to be a bit of value to you because you have just denied the word of God because the word says those who believe will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, and whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. You prayed the prayer of faith, and he denied it. By his confession, he annulled my prayer and destroyed the effect of my faith. Your confession must absolutely agree with the word. And if you have prayed in Jesus' name, you're to hold fast your confession. It's real easy to destroy the effect of your prayer by a negative confession. Our faith or unbelief is determined by our confession. And few of us realize the effect of our spoken word on our own hearts or on our enemy. He hears us make our confessions of failure or sickness of lack, and apparently he don't forget. And we unconsciously go down to the level of our confession. And nobody ever rises above it. If you confess sickness, it develops sickness in your system. If you confess doubt, the doubts become stronger. If you confess lack of finances, it stops the money from coming in. You say, I can't understand it. No, because most of us live in the sense and flesh realm. And spiritual things are real unclear to us. Hebrews 4.14, this has to become a constant reality. Listen to what it said. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And our confession is that the word can't be broken, that what the Father says is true. And when we doubt the Father, we're doubting his word. When we doubt his word, it is because we believe something else that's contrary to the word of God. Our confidence may be in the arm of flesh. It may be in medicine. It may be in institutions. It may be in doctors. But whatever our confidence is in, if it contradicts the word, it destroys our faith life. It destroys our prayers, and it brings us again into bondage. 
Every person that walks by faith, they're going to have testing. And they don't come from the Father, they come from the enemy. And he is refusing to allow you to escape him. And you become dangerous to the enemy when you become strong enough to resist him. When you have learned to trust in the ability of the Father to meet your every need. And when that becomes a reality in your consciousness, the enemy is defeated, glory to God. But as long as he confused, can confuse the issue and keep you in a state of flux, you're at a disadvantage. And I'll just pray that your confidence in the word be strengthened to make you know that no word from God is void of power or can go by default. There ain't a power in all the universe to void one statement of fact in this word of God. He said, the Lord said this. He said, I'll watch over my word to perform it, Jeremiah 1 and 12. And again, over in 1 Peter 2, 6, he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Your confidence is in that unbroken living word, and you hold fast to your confession in the face of every assault of the enemy. A few of us realize, we're talking about our conversation now, few of us realize the effect that our conversations have upon our own spirits. When you pretend to be what you're not, you talk glibly about it. It builds into your spirit a weakness, and it's like a piece of rot in the beam of a building. Or your conversation may be full of discouragement, and you talk of your failures. You talk of your inferiority. Eventually, it's going to rob you of any type of initiative, and you're going to find it difficult to rise above that mental attitude. But on the other hand, if you speak the truth about what you are in Christ and you confess to your friends or your enemies what God is to you and of your union with him, you confess that you are actually partners with him, that he's the one who backs you up and he's the one that furnishes the capital to put the thing over. You give him credit for his ability and for his wisdom. And you dare to make your confession boldly of your confidence in your success by his grace. Jesus' bold and continual confession is our example. We are what he made us to be. Jesus confessed what he was. Since knowledge could not understand it, we are to confess what we are in Christ. Men of the senses are not going to understand us. And to confess that you are redeemed, that your redemption is an actual reality, that you are delivered out of Satan's dominion and authority would be a daring confession to make to them. And to confess that you are an actual new creation created in Christ Jesus, that you are a partaker of that very nature and life of deity, that would amaze your friends. And it isn't confessing it once, but daily affirming your relationship to him, confessing your righteousness and your ability to stand in his presence without the sense of guilt or inferiority. Dare to stand in the presence of sense knowledge 
the facts of sense knowledge and declare that you are what God says you are. For instance, sense knowledge declares that I am sick with an incurable disease, but I confess that God laid that disease on Jesus, that Satan has no right to put it on me, and that by his stripes I am healed. And I am to hold fast in my confession in the face of apparent sense knowledge contradiction. Sense knowledge says it ain't true that I am confessing an untruth, but I'm going to confess what God says. That is the truth. You see, there are two kinds of truth. There's sense knowledge truth and there's revelation truth. And they're usually opposed to each other. But I live in the new realm above the senses. So I hold fast to my confession that I am what the word of God says I am. I suppose my senses have revealed the fact that I am in great need financially. Here's what the word said. My God shall supply all of your needs. Philippians 4, 19. And I call his attention to what the senses have intimated. And he knows that my expectations are for him. And look at Psalm 62 and 5. It tells you that. And I refuse to be intimidated by sense evidence. I refuse to have my life governed by them. And I know that he who is in me is greater than the forces that surround me. The forces that oppose me are in the senses. But the power that is in me is the Holy Spirit. And I know that spiritual forces are greater than the forces in the sense realm. And I maintain my confession of spiritual values of spiritual realities in the face of sense contradictions. Faith confession is always a joyful confession. It confesses that we have the money before it has arrived. It confesses perfect healing while pain is still in the body. It confesses victory while defeat still holds it captive. And your confession is based upon the living word. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is not only able to make good, but he is making good now, right now, in my case, Second Timothy 1 and 12. And when we confess the word with joy, it brings conviction to the listeners. In Romans 10, 10, the scripture says, for with the heart man believeth. And I like to translate it like this, for with the heart man acts on the word. The heart acts. And that drives the lips to confession. A doubting heart is a sense-ruled heart, but a fearless confession comes from a word ruled heart. The word dominates the heart life. And the person speaks as Paul did, saying, I know whom I have believed. Second Timothy 1 and 12. You remember Paul stood on the deck of that ship in the midst of that awful storm. And he said, I believe God. And then he told those, those men, he said, every one of you will get to the shore safely, but the ship's going to be lost. That was in Acts 27. He said, come, let us break our fast. He broke bread, gave thanks in the midst of them, and he gave them more than bread. He gave them courage. He encouraged them. Paul had a faith-filled, joyous confession. Only a heart that is nourished on the word can stand in these hard places. When we know that the word is God speaking to us now, it's not difficult for us to act upon it. 
in Psalms 119.89, we read that the word is settled in heaven, glory to God. But when I read that, I saw that it has to be settled in my heart. I'm not going to any longer try to settle it. I knew that no word from God was void of fulfillment. And I wasn't any, uh, I wasn't afraid to act on it anymore. The word became more real to me than any word man had ever spoken. My lips were filled with laughter. My heart was filled with joy. And I had a victorious confession, glory to God. And how many times have I seen the hesitant confession be a forerunner of failure and the joyful confession a forerunner of victory? And when we fearlessly act upon the word and joyfully cast our every care on him, victory is as sure as the rising of the sun, glory to God. We walk in the light of our testimony and our faith never goes beyond what we confess. The word becomes real only as we confess its reality. And the reason for this is because we walk by faith and not by sight. Second Corinthians 5 and 7. Since knowledge would confess only what it had seen, heard, or felt. And the people who are seeking experiences always walk by the senses. Our testimony of the reality of the word is feared by Satan, our enemy. Romans 10 and 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth. And this reacts on our hearts. This is doubt spoken by the lips reacts on our hearts. When you talk of your doubts and your fear, you destroy your faith. When you talk of the ability of the Father that is yours, you fill your lips with praise for answers to prayers that you have asked. Its reaction upon the heart is tremendous. And your faith will grow by leaps and bounds. When you talk about your trials or your difficulties or of your lack of faith, of your lack of money, your faith shrivels up. It loses its virility and your whole spirit life shrinks. You study about what you are in Christ and then you confess it boldly and you dare to act on what the word of God says in the face of what sense knowledge says. And regardless of appearance, you take your stand, you make a confession, and you hold fast to it in the face of apparent, of, of apparent impossibilities. You see, faith doesn't ask for possible things. Faith is demanding the impossible. Prayer is never for the possible, but always for the thing that is out of reason. And it's God who is at work with us, in us, and for us. Romans 8 and 32 says, he shall, How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see, you're launching out into the realm of the impossible, just as Abraham did when he asked for a son. You're not asking for something you can do for yourself, but for something that is beyond reason. And then you refuse to acknowledge fear or to entertain a doubt. You know, the hardest battles I have ever fought have been along this line. The greatest battles I have ever won have been those that seemed the most impossible. And where there was the greatest opposition, where reason was discredited by faith, I went ahead and held fast to my confession and the word was made good. Glory to God. 
Confess your dominion over disease in Jesus' name. Never be frightened by any condition, no matter how forbidding, how impossible the case may be. It may be cancer. It might be tuberculosis. It might be anything. It might be an accident, which death seems to be in charge of the situation. But you never give in. You know that you and God are masters of any situation. And you never for a moment lose your confession of your authority over the works of the adversary. This disease, this calamity, it ain't of God. It has but one source, and that's Satan. In Jesus' name, you are master. You have taken Jesus' place. You are acting in his stead. And you fearlessly take your position, confess your ability in Christ to meet any emergency. And always remember that Jesus met defeat and conquered it. You're, you are facing defeat everywhere as a master. Don't let down. Keep your solid front, glory to God. Philippians 1, 27 and 28 says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or be absent, I may hear of your state, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one soul striving for the faith of the gospel and in nothing affrighted by the adversary, which is for them an evident token of perdition, but of your salvation, and that from God. That solid front spoken of in Colossians 2 and 5 is a solid front presented to your enemy. Yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Folks, you can't be conquered. Your spirit is whispering, nay, in all these things, I am more than a conqueror. See Romans 8 and 37. Every disease is of the adversary. All kinds of sin are of the enemy. All opposition to the glad tidings is of the enemy. Because, listen, God and I are victors. God and you are victors. Greater is he that is in you than his, this opposition or this disease. There ain't no need that's greater than my Lord. There's no lack that he can't meet. This indomitable will that God has brought about in you cannot be overwhelmed or conquered. You remember what you are. You are a new creation. You are a branch of the vine. You are an heir of God. You are united with him. You are one with him. And he is the greater part of that one, Lord of God. And there's no such thing as conquering God when his instrument refuses to admit that the enemy can overwhelm him. And you are that instrument. Philippians 4 and 11 says, For I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therein to be content. You said that you could not, and the moment that you said it, you were whipped. You said you didn't have faith. And doubt arose like a giant bound you. You are imprisoned with your own words. You talked failure, and failure held you in bondage. Proverbs 6 and 2 says, Thou art snared with the words of thy mouth. And few of us realize that our words dominate us. A young man said one time, I was never whipped until I confessed I was whipped. Another said, the moment I began to make a bold, confident confession, a new courage that I had never known took possession of me. 
and another young mother said, my lips have been a constant curse. I've never been able to get the mastery of my lips. You know, it's not too bad speaking your mind if you have the mind of Christ. But as long as you have a mind dominated by the devil, I, nobody cares to hear your mind. Never feel failure. Never talk defeat. Never for a moment acknowledge that God's ability can't put you over. Become God inside minded. Remember this, that greater is he that is in you than any force that can come against you. Remember that God created a universe with words. That words are mightier than tanks or bombs. Mightier than the army or navy. And learn to use words so that they will work for you and be your servant. Learn that your lips can make you a millionaire or a pauper. Wanted or despised. A victor or a captive. And your words can be filled with faith that will stir heaven and make men want to be around you. Remember that you can fill your words with love so that they will melt the coldest heart and warm and heal the broken and discouraged. In other words, your words can become what you wish them to be. You can make them rhyme. You can fill them with rhythm. You can fill them with hatred, with poison, or you can make them breathe the very fragrance of heaven. And now you can see vividly what your confession can mean to your own heart. Remember this, your faith will never register above the words of your lips. And it's not bad to think a thing as it is to say it. Thoughts are going to come and persist in thing, but if you refuse to put them into words, they're going to die unborn, praise God. Cultivate the habit of thinking big things and then learn to use words that will react upon your own spirit and make you a conqueror. Jesus' confessions prove to be reality. Faith's confessions create realities. Jesus confessed he was the light of the world. He was it. The rejection of him was plunged into the world, into new darkness. He said he was the bread from heaven. And it's true. The people who have fed upon his words have never suffered want. His words build faith as we act on them and let them live in us. His words will fill with himself as we act them. They will fill us with Christ. His words feed faith and cause it to grow in power in us. The believer's words should be born of love and filled with love. Our lips are taking the place of his. And our words should never bruise or hurt, but should bless and heal. Jesus was the way, the reality, and the life. We're taking his place, showing the way, confessing the reality, and enjoying life. You'll never enjoy what you are in Christ until his love rules your lips. Glory to God. I'm out of time. God bless you. We'll see you next time, God willing. For information, materials, and to contribute, go to unleavenedbreadministries.org. Contributions only may be addressed to David Eels. Post Office Box 231616, Montgomery, Alabama, 36123. Can quench my thirsting soul, purest water made me whole.
Let your streams of mercy flow, oh Jesus, I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For oh, your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, I trust in you. That darkest night, what will be my guiding light? The shining rays of red and white. Jesus, I trust in you. Oh, sacred heart, in you I find mercy seated for all time. I am yours and you are mine. Oh, Jesus, I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For oh, your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For oh, your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus. Jesus